Lord, for just a time of, of uh, fellowship and laughter, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for the privilege to come every Sunday in this place to worship you and to grow in you, Lord. There's just so much to know, and we'll never know it all on, on this side of heaven, but, Lord, we just thank you for the insights that you give us through the anointing of your Spirit. I pray, Lord, that this message will be pleasing to you, where I hope that there could be a, 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 tr- a thought or two from this message that your people will take to their hearts, Lord, and they can take it home with them. And I just pray that you may anoint me to preach this message for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Sometimes it doesn't seem to matter which way we turn. We just seem to be in a no-win situation. That was Judas King Hezekiah's dilemma. And if you look at uh, uh, 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19, you'll find his story there. There was a period of time in Hezekiah's reign when it was filled with peace and prosperity. Then the world's most powerful nation at the time, Assyria, swept through the northern tribes of Israel. When they're finished with the northern tribes, then they turn their attention to Judah and their territory. And so they, they really, they swept through Judah like a rampaging California forest fire. And it was very clear that Judah didn't stand a chance of overwhelming the ruthless Assyrian army. In fact, one of the Assyrian generals taunted King Hezekiah in order to try to make Judah comply. So, Hezekiah, it seems, it's apparent that he had two choices. And what were his choices? The first was to surrender. If he surrendered, he'd be dethroned. He'd be captured, of course. And most likely, his family would be executed. Or he could refuse to surrender knowing that the Assyrian army would eventually overtake the city at a severe cost of human life. So if you look at 2 Kings 19.1, Hezekiah tore his clothes as a sign of mourning. And then he began to pray and ask for help. So hold on to what I just said, that story. Now, this, you know, this all-powerful king, so we know where he's at. Now, listen to this story that I heard was shared by a pastor. One of a pastor's parishioners, a family, they came to him one evening at his home, very surprised. And the pastor was shocked by the news that their eight-year-old daughter had been kidnapped from a playground.
they found one doll and one, one, one of her tennis shoes near the swing set. So the family and the parents prayed and prayed and prayed, and they were so anxious and trying to, trying to find ways to find their, their daughter. They went on television, on radio. Then a few weeks later, law enforcement found the little girl dumped in a field. And the father shared his grief. He was a very successful businessman. He said he basically, his job, he, God gave him the gift to solve problems. He was a problem solver. But he couldn't solve this problem. This was just beyond him. And then he wondered out loud. He said, and as I think perhaps we would wonder as well, how can people face horrible crises apart from God? What he held on to was his faith in his God. At the end of the day, that's all we have, and that's enough, isn't it? To have faith in our God. Now let's go back. My first thought, we're going to call it game changer. changer. We're going to go back to Hezekiah. And we're going to be looking at 2 Kings 19, 5 through 7. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underling Syria have blasphemed me. Listen, when, I, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country. And there I will have him cut down with the sword. Hezekiah was smart enough to acknowledge that all his assets, his royal power, his political position were not enough to overcome the Assyrian army. So he sent a delegation to meet with Isaiah the prophet. He didn't need more politicians. He didn't need secular advice. He didn't need more war councils. He did not need military strategists. He did not need fortune tellers instead. He needed to hear. He needed to hear that one voice, that one word from the one who followed God, Isaiah. He needed so desperately to hear that. And miraculously, if you read the story, that in one single day, God had an angel strike down, what, 185,000 Assyrians? You can look that up, and uh, reference would be 2 Chronicles 32, 21, I believe. Isaiah's message was a game changer for King Hezekiah. It changed, really, his, his reign. It changed. They suddenly went from uh, this no-win situation to God took care of it. No doubt, no doubt in my mind that times have dramatically changed since the days of Hezekiah. But one thing remains constant. That constant is God is always speaking and communicating, doing signs and wonders, and being a game changer for his people 
in a variety of ways. Amen? Amen. He's always constantly speaking to us in so many different ways. Now, I'm going to number two really quick. God speaks. And just look at Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal what? They reveal knowledge. One of our favorite vacation places for the, through the years has been Green Lake, Wisconsin, there. And one thing that, Jan, we like to do is at night when there isn't a, a, a full moon or nothing, just the sky is clear and it's just black. And as you walk by that lake, you look up and those stars are just like, I'm looking up here and see these lights in the ceiling or whatever. They just seem to jump out at you. And there's so many of them. And you think to yourself, there's so many out there, and yet they're all there. There's a pattern. Each and every one, God has created a pattern for every one of them. So the psalmist is telling us that God reveals himself also through his creation, through the trees, through, I look at all of you and you're all different. Isn't that amazing? All the people in the world that's ever been created, that we're all different. That's God. That's his creative genius, if you will. And that's not even a proper word because he goes beyond genius. It's just amazing what God does each and every day that sometimes I think we just kind of take it for granted. So God speaks through nature, the creation. He speaks through angels in the Old Testament as well as the New the prophets as well. But it's interesting with prophets, sometimes people think that prophets only foretell the future, but that's not the case. They also pre- present the word. Sometimes we forget that. In fact, if you want to stretch it a little bit, some will say that prophets, uh, preachers are prophets. Why? Because they present the word. You could probably debate that one. You know, I probably would a little bit. But, but we have an understanding of that. And then, of course, God speaks through dreams. Who is the greatest dreamer in the Bible? Joseph. Joseph. Absolutely. He was to a fault. He was, he was a dreamer. And if you look at Genesis, I think it's 37, 5 through 11, God revealed to, Josh, uh, to uh, Joseph that he would be a leader of people. Leader of a nation. And of course, God speaks through visions. But it's interesting, going back, coming back to, I just thought of this, that with dreams, when God gave a dream in the Old Testament, it wasn't usually concerning everyday things. It was always something of great national significance. So think about that one. Visions. He speaks through visions. How about the voice? Does God speak through? We find that in the burning bush, right? God spoke to Moses. How about young Samuel? In 1 Samuel 3, uh, what, 4, 6, 8, and 10, he spoke to young Samuel four times. So what we're saying here, God speaks in a variety of ways, doesn't he? Through fire, through a, a burning bush, 
through scripture, through judgment, through preaching, through miracles, a donkey. Amazing. And the writing on the wall from Daniel and a variety of other ways. God just speaks to us. Number three, flowers in your hair. We're going to be here for a while with that one. Some of you are thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Well, sometimes, you know, they tell you in, in preaching classes or whatever, you've got to get people's attention. So I figured I got your attention on that one a little bit. Flowers in your hair. Let's look at this prophecy. And we're talking about God speaking. I'm going to stick with a, a prophecy. And we need to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We've heard this before because I preached on this. But it bears repeating. You know, isn't it interesting because you can give a, 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 a scripture and in a month or two, it can be entirely different. You can have a different meaning to it or because God, God's scripture is so full of nuggets. There's so many things we can draw from it. So let's look at this passage from Paul. Paul said, Mark, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, not our kids. I'm just kind of waiting for a response to that one. Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Have any form, listen to this one, have any form of godliness but denying its power. That says a lot about today. Have any form of godliness. People, they, not you, but we see so much more of the church today where people are playing church, but they're not really doing church. They've lost the zest and power of the Holy Spirit. They're not even seeking it. Have nothing to do with these people. Now, this prophecy emphasizes the rebellious self-love, lover of pleasures, me-first attitudes in the last days of the church and of this earthly history of ours. We are in that stage, that point in time, where the church, as I mentioned it many times, as, a, as in general, is in critical condition. And not only in the United States, but all over the world. The church is not like, like it was back in the 60s or 40s. It's changed dramatically. People aren't going to church. So many people are leaving church. They're so influenced by the values of society, it just goes on and on and on. And those in church, some are divided. They say, well, you don't need to repent. You know, God died for all of us, you know, so we don't need to repent and, and, and seek him every day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on and on. This is called, remember, apostasy. That's my word. In the church, that means a departure from the faith. A falling away, if you will, in thought 
and action. The 1960s were arguably the most turbulent years of the 20th century. You guys, when you know that, you say, 60, that's, that's like ancient history. I, well, it is, but not for us, those that lived it. So what do you think of that? <laughs> and there was a song... Songs, it's interesting. You know, you listen, I don't listen to the music today, the modern stuff. I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm talking about secular music. I love secular music. You know, I look at Becker, we like Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett. It's amazing. 95, the guy is still entertaining. That is an amazing thing, isn't it? But anyway, music speaks to uh, the times, what's going on during a particular time. So the music that maybe you embrace, you know, as a person, that, that favorite song or whatever, when you hear that song, you'll go back to that time and that place, maybe where you were. Maybe it's a nice little, uh, I don't know, she wore blue velvet. Remember that one? She wore blue velvet. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And some people they say, oh, I remember that's when I, I asked my girlfriend to go steady. Back in our day, it was you go steady with the rings or whatever, et cetera. So, anyway, it takes us back to those moments in our lives, right? Now, uh, we're getting ready, right? And here I'm going to share before we uh, uh, play this part of this song. There was a song back in 1967 called San Francisco. Very good. And San Francisco. It was written by John Phillips. You know what John Phillips is? I'm, I'm out. John Phillips was one of the creators of the Mamas and the Papas. Remember that? Mamas and the Papas? Harvey Sin. Why, who, that, that's right. Ooh, that's right. All right, good. So this is not relevant for you. You mean you say, whatever. All right. And it was, it was written by John Phillips. It was sung by Scott McKenzie. We call those, these, probably this song was a one-hit wonder for Scott McKenzie. And so what I want to do, very briefly, I want us to listen, listen to the words. Because, especially back in the 60s, words were very, very important in song. I want you to listen to these words, because we're going to talk a little bit about this. Could you just play that? And I'll tell you when to stop.
Thank you. That song, San Francisco, was one of the best-selling single records throughout all the 60s. And here's one of the reasons why. Because people, back in those days, it, it identified with the counterculture movement of the 60s. You know, and which included the hippie movement, included the anti-Vietnam War movement, and included the, the uh, rebellion, anti-establishment, authority. Then we, we talked about love-ins. He talked about love-ins. People in motion. There was a lot of turmoil. It was such a turbulent time. During, and that song is very, you know, they talk about, he talk about uh, love. You know, used to say, really, make love back in those days, make love, not war. It, it, it was a mess time. Then you had also, you had the assassination of JFK. You had the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. You had the assassination of Robert Kennedy. All this is rolled up into the 60s. And people, with it, all of this, plus you know, what, the civil rights movement was going on at that time, you had social issues, all posed threats to the family values and traditions of the day. That was the game changer in our modern history, the 60s. We, were, we lived in it. We know it. In fact, I met Jan in San Francisco with a flower in her hair. I know. Uh, but, you know, so that song is important. You say, well, for people that lived back in those days, that means a lot to us because of the times that we lived in. So the song San Francisco carries you know, really vibes of the time. However, now we're getting into you guys. However, the 60s, in my opinion, don't even come close to what's going on in the 21st century today. Ideologies. Society. Values, religion, have so divided our country like never before. Conflicts between the left and the right, progressives and the conservatives. Civil discourse has been replaced by hateful, intolerant discourse. And to top it all off, I think the mob rule has overtaken the internet slash and social media. Elon Musk. I never really knew who the richest man in the world was until they started talking about Elon Musk. Well, he's the wealthiest man in the world. Okay, so, okay, now, but what's going on with him? Well, he's what? The controversy came because he wanted to buy the time Twitter. Oh my goodness, I could not believe what was the rhetoric coming out of that. And the man hadn't even bought it yet. Now he has it. Oh my goodness, 
People were hysterical this past week because Elon Musk bought Twitter. Some called him a racist. How can you call a man a racist? We don't know what he's going to do with Twitter. We can guess. We don't know. But, oh, it created a new wave of people panic over Twitter. Why say twiddly D? Who really cares at this point? Who knows what he's going to do? I don't know his religion. I haven't looked him up. I don't know if he's a libertarian. I don't know if he's a Democrat or a Republican or whatever. But we tend to, the mob tends, tends to take over and we create things in our heads that aren't there. And sometimes we do that in church. Got to stick with the facts. In church, in your faith walk, stick with the facts. Amen and amen. So, having said all of this, let us not forget that God, God lets himself be known through so many avenues of his revelation. That's sticking with the facts. He, he lets himself be known through nature, through his son, through the scriptures, through dreams and visions and angels and prophets. Judgments. The church and the Holy Spirit. Are we listening? Why does he do all of this? Because he loves, he values, and he cares for us that much that he's chosen to reveal himself. We just need to be cautious not to abuse his voice, not to abuse when he speaks. Isaiah was a really a follower of God, a man of God. Jeremiah, why? They were just like us. But God chose to use them because I think one of the reasons why, because he knew that their faith was spot on, that they had balance. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I encourage you, no matter where you are, to find balance in your faith. All I can say is I don't know it all, but I've been a born-again Christian for a long, long, long time. And I'm still looking for my balance because there's so much more that I need to learn. We need to learn to be humble. We need to learn that we don't know it all. We need to learn that we need to be always open to God's voice, what he's saying and sharing with us. Amen? We need to listen. And as we, as we partake of this communion, God is speaking to each and every one of us right now. I believe he's speaking, and he's saying, look, look what I've done for you. Look what I've done for your salvation. And consider the cost. How much it cost me to save you. 
It costs my son. Could you sacrifice your child? Oh, only God can do that. Only God can sacrifice himself for us because he loves us that much. Communion should never, ever be old. We say, well, we do communion once a month. Don't you think that's too much? Really, how can you? We should always be thinking and remembering what God and Christ has done for us each and every day. Amen? So when Jesus eat this in remembrance of me, he wasn't talking about for two months or three months or for ten years. He's talking about for all of life, all of eternity. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. And Lord, I just pray that Lord, that we will remember today as you speak to us through the bread and the cup that we will eat and we drink in remembrance what Jesus, you've done for us on the cross. We thank you, Lord, and we give you praise. When Jesus gathered with his, his disciples on that Thursday before he was arrested, after they had eaten, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembering me. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you. And we do remember I pray right now, Lord, in our own hearts and minds, Lord, that we will pause and we will remember and share our remembrance with you.